Hi everyone, welcome once again to another episode of In the Spotlight, the SciComm podcast brought to you by Northwest University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. We hope you've been enjoying the season so far. We've had a ton of fun making these episodes. If you haven't listened to anything yet, make sure to check out our last week's policy mini-series, where we investigate the policy and its effects revolving around COVID-19 and schooling. If you're more in the mood for singular topics, check out our wide selection of episodes from the previous seasons. We talk about everything from theoretical mathematics to the development of advanced prosthesis. I know that a lot of our previous episodes have centered on STEM fields, the physical sciences, but we firmly believe that any and every area of scientific research should be explored and discussed, be it biochemistry or cultural theory. On that note, joining us today to talk about the fascinating field of urban sociology is Alice Wilson. Alice is a third-year PhD candidate at the University of York in the UK, where she studies how the use of small houses can empower women to combat both capitalism and the patriarchy. Alice, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Hi, Nicholas. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Um, we haven't had, uh, I, I guess, like you um, previously, so I'm, I'm excited as to what questions we can touch upon and uh, kind of the discussions that we can have. So if you've listened to the show before, which it sounds like you have, um, you know that we always start on one question, which is why science? In this case, why the social sciences? Um, what led you to the field that you're in? Mm -hmm. I really like this question. It's a lovely way into all kinds of good topics. Why science? So insofar as the scientific method is just an approach to understanding why things happen, then I would say why science is just an extension of one of the most basic human motivations, right? Which is curiosity fundamentally has been the driver of all of our evolution, both um, physically and culturally. It's one of the most famous questions that children notoriously ask endlessly, isn't it? Why? But why though? But why? So my science origin story is that I have been very lucky, I suppose, to benefit from many intersecting and unearned privileges of whiteness, of not being financially destitute, of not being born in a war-torn country or under a set of, you know, cultural norms that forbid women from pursuing education that have allowed me to retain and explore this childlike appetite to ask why forever, incessantly. And the social sciences is very welcoming of that approach. Yeah, exactly. If there if there's one thing that uh, that I've noticed is pattern in people's answers to this question is exactly that is it's it usually starts young that they're curious about a certain topic and they just never stop asking about it. So you did mention social sciences and obviously I mentioned uh, that you work in urban sociology, but what led you to to this specific field from this very wide range of social sciences that uh, that, that we have? Yeah. So the reason I'm asking this why question about tiny houses, about the women who live in them and about what their life is like before and after is like, I'm going to say like 80% of academic inquiry born from self-interest, basically. So tiny houses like converted shipping containers, converted vans, horse boxes, tree houses, boats, timber framed, trailer based models that you're probably most familiar with seeing uh, like on Instagram are things that people make. They involve learning how to change your physical environment and build something that wasn't there before. And I love making things. 
um, I don't know if you're familiar with the writer John Green, but um, I watched a like a YouTube vlog that he did once and he was asked the question, how do you have a good life, John? And he said, find cool people and make stuff with them. And I strongly agree with this edict on how to have a good time. So I write fiction and poetry. I spend a lot of time drawing and illustrating. I moved to Greece when I was 20 to work on a farm so I could learn how to repair outbuildings and make olive oil. Um, Tiny houses as a phenomena of creativity, of ingenuity, of making stuff satisfies my desire to be close to creative people and creative acts. And then tiny houses as a form of affordable housing align with my own background as a working class person who is intimately familiar with housing insecurity and the tyranny of mortgage payments and the precarity of the private rental sector. Then tiny houses as a tool in the feminist arsenal, which are empower women to live alone and to live on their own terms aligns with my own interest in how to do exactly that as a woman in the world and as a, as a feminist and tiny houses as a way of dramatically reducing the carbon burden of residential dwelling construction of fuel use aligns with my interest in you know ameliorating the species level threat of extinction <laughs> caused by ecocide and the climate breakdown And then tiny houses as being highly correlated with anti-capitalist and anti-consumerist value systems and communities aligns with my own interest in alternatives to capitalism and aligns with my interest in ways that we can extricate ourselves even just slightly from this cloying sense of disgust with the, you know, crushing prevalence of advertising, the pressure to buy and own as if those are important things to do in the world. So in in summary, tiny houses and the women who design and build them and live in them offer like a synergistic way for me to cultivate my own interests in all of the things that I am already interested in. Okay. Fascinating. It's it's definitely, uh, I think it's super cool how you've connected these. I think quite, I don't want to say common objects, but perhaps... um, everyday objects, things that people wouldn't think have a lot of special meaning to, I think, was it four or five very large, very, <laughs> very important fields, right? Every Everything from self-sufficiency to independence to um, environmental threat to capitalism. Um, yeah, fascinating. I'd like to touch on on those independently, or or perhaps um, figure out where they intersect or how they intersect most closely. So, I'd I'd like to start by asking, how where did this idea of tiny houses start from? It's I know that obviously obviously over the past decade or or more, we've had one housing crisis after another, and the rising. Uh, inequality that makes it difficult for young people to afford houses uh, is definitely, I think, a topic that's in everyone's minds. But um, did the birth of tiny houses arise from these historical contexts or was it an independent phenomenon? So as long as human civilizations have existed, there have been examples of what we might describe as tiny houses. That is people seeking to live um, in the smallest place that they can for reasons of environmental stewardship or people living in very small spaces out of financial constraints. So tiny houses aren't new, but tiny houses in their current iteration, as we might recognise them on social media, is new-ish. 
So um, one of the kind of cornerstones of this most recent example of the tiny house movement was the setting up of tumbleweed tiny houses by a gentleman called Jay Schaefer in the late 90s. So even before the financial crisis that, that we're all familiar with, 2008 crash, there was already an appetite for for something else, you know, for an alternative to the received status quo of the flow chart of life. Go to school, get a good education, get a good job, have a picket fence, etc. all of that stuff. So there's forever been an appetite for something different. But certainly you are right in identifying that the financial crisis was a real catalyst for the explosion of the tiny house movement as as we see it today. And that's kind of born out of two main places, I would say. And one is just the need to survive. A lot of people were financially decimated by the financial crisis and lots of people lost their homes, lots of people lost their jobs. I know that in the UK, wages still haven't recovered to their pre-financial crisis level. And it's been a very long time now (laughs) since that happened. Um, So relatively speaking, your purchasing power is still lower than it was before um, the financial crisis. The period of wage stagnation that we're in now has lasted since roughly the Napoleonic War. It's really incredible to try and understand how unequal the country is. Um, And then the second place that the renewed sort of vigour for tiny houses has come from, I think, is like an imaginative place. So a lot of the women that I speak to for my thesis, they could technically afford to live in a conventional home if they wanted to. And if all they wanted was to live in a small square foot space, then they could have a small apartment. They could have a room in a shared house. That's a small space for them to live in. But tiny houses mean something more than just the absolute reduction in cubic feet that you take up, right? Because they're semantically, they're meaningfully linked to ideas about fairness and only using the amount that you need and critically questioning our inherited messaging about buying stuff and that it's supposed to make you feel good, which it never really does. Otherwise, you would get to a point where you're like, I've bought all the stuff now that makes me feel good. I don't need to buy any more stuff. And that is manifestly not how (laughs) economics works. So lots of people, um, I think, were affected by the financial crisis in a kind of slap in the face way of everything that we're taught about how life should work doesn't work, not for us, not for 95% of the population. And I think that it sparked some kind of imaginative interest on on what the other possibilities are. I think that's a great answer. Because obviously there's always uh, multiple motives or, or interests that people have towards exploring solutions to problems that they might see. So I, I think I, I was particularly aware of, I guess, the push for tiny houses, at least the, the modernized push for tiny houses in, in, in pre the 2000s. Uh, I, I guess it's been fascinating to see that the idea has been around for a while. Um, you mentioned that, you know, that obviously women who, who you speak to for your thesis, and I'd, I'd like to touch a little bit about how you do your research in, in a second. You mentioned how these women can live in kind of characteristically um, larger houses that I think a lot of society envisions as the end goal for for economic prosperity, um, or they could live in one, one square meter or in a shared house, but they choose to live in tiny houses. Does that mean that tiny houses, like to be a tiny house, there is a specific definition? Are there certain types of tiny houses um, that differ in, I guess, advantages, disadvantages, um, meaning? 
perhaps? Yeah, I would say so. I think that's a really perceptive question. It's quite um, an interesting part of the conversation that goes on within the tiny house communities. You know, what does it mean to be a tiny houser? And is there any of this tribalist sort of purism about I'm a real tiny houser because I have a dry composting toilet or <laughs> any of this kind of symbolic, you know, demonstration of how truly tiny house they really are? Uh Yes, there are differences in the types of tiny houses. And really, I would say the amount of difference that you can tolerate from what most people think of as a regular life, a regular home, right? So if you live in a converted van, you are going to experience more inconvenience and potentially more discomfort than someone who lives in a converted shipping container, which is planted in one place. And whilst it doesn't have dug in foundations, you can't drive around your shipping container, but you can drive around your van. Um, You're unlikely to have really a toilet in a van. You can have a fully plumbed in toilet in in a shipping container conversion if you want to and if you can do that. Of course, then the sort of cost benefit analysis is to do with how much freedom in terms of physical mobility you have versus how much you want to be rooted in a community, a place. I think the the type of tiny house that most people might think of when they hear the phrase tiny house are the kind of cute, almost Disney-fied trailer-based models that look like a cottage core, you know, tiny house like a Georgian double-fronted house, but really small, (laughs) on a trailer base. Um, But there's a huge amount of variety. I haven't been able to speak to anyone who lives in a tree house or a hobbit burrow, but it's top of my list. I'm looking for those women. I know they're out there. Yep, that's that's the dream. Um, Yeah, it's super interesting. I guess it's always, there's always a cost-benefit analysis. I guess it depends on what you want to get out of your, your tiny house. Right. I think for me, my main exposure to tiny houses hasn't really been um, uh, shipping containers. I think it's been the idea of, of van dwelling as motility and, and self-reliance and, and to be very much, I guess, separated from from larger urban communities and kind of be a, a almost nomadic um, lifestyle. Um, so it's interesting to hear that there's also another category of tiny houses, which is much more integrated into communities, right, because they're stationary um but how i guess you can still reach a form of independence through those um yeah i'd like to talk a little bit more about that that kind of that sense of independence and and how it's reached through tiny houses um you mentioned that your research obviously is 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 through talking to these women that, that, that have or who live in tiny houses which I think is probably one of the most different types of research to what I experience, which is in a lab, in a bench, <laughs> not talking to anyone but myself. <laughs> so um, what's what's kind of, how do you do your research on? Because it is fascinating. Um, and I'd, I'd love to hear your day to day. So there are a few different ways that I seek out and encounter these women. And helpfully, because even when they live in a kind of an atomized way, like you identified, so these van-dwelling tiny houses who really prioritize mobility, like you said, and you're right that it does often emphasize more a kind of removal from urban places and from 
towns and cities and all that. It's quite often very outdoorsy sort of people. A lot of rock climbers, for example, seem to love living in vans. But they're very often connected to communities online, which means that once you know somebody who lives in a van, you can quite easily be introduced to five other people who live in a van. Um, And that's how a lot of my sampling has worked. So I have a research website where I publish more long form kind of essays, blogs, what I've been getting up to, what I've been thinking about. And a few people have reached me through that website. And I also curate an Instagram account because a lot of tiny house activity takes place on Instagram. There's a lot of sharing of information, of tips, of recommendations for which kind of solar panels and who knows what about the uh, land use legislation in this state of America and all this kind of community building activities, right? Mutual aid and sharing of free resources and advice. Um, So again, once you know somebody there, you know 10 more people there. I've used Facebook. I've used all of the sort of social media outlets that we've all heard of and know about um, and have reached the initial like sample of people that way and then have been recommended on friends of friends of friends. And in terms of the actual data collection, it's been fairly similar to what you and I are doing now. So there'll be a bit of emailing back and forth where they're like, are you a real person? And uh, I demonstrate that I am in fact a real person and this is a real research project Um, and then we we have a zoom call usually they tend to last between half an hour and an hour and a half and I use a semi-structured approach to the data collection so there are a few key areas that I I want to talk around but nothing specifically that they have to answer outside of demographic information like their gender, how much they earn in a year, how much their tiny house costs to build because I'm trying to start creating a little map, sort of a Venn diagram maybe I suppose, of what kind of tiny houses are out there and what is the sort of standard deviation around how much they cost versus how much the person owns who's built them and like the spread is really huge I've had women who have built their entire home for five thousand pounds right up to high-end luxury finish ninety five thousand dollars tiny homes on wheels and everything in between um yeah so after we've had a conversation like this I painstakingly claw out my eyes whilst transcribing the interviews I jest though because it's actually a really excellent and important part of the data analysis because you become so familiar with the conversation you really deep dive into exactly what they said and kind of the slow methodical process of listening typing listening typing gives you a lot of chance to sort of soak in what happened in the conversation and reflect on bits that you were too busy doing the conversation at the time to really think about but it's time consuming. But you're doing a PhD, you know what I mean? So it's not going to take you five minutes, is it? Um, yeah, I, is that is that a sort of a good outline for you of roughly what the process is? That is excellent. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I am intimately familiar with, with how long <laughs> editing takes. Uh, kudos to you for listening to your own voice for a PhD worth amount of time. It's a uh, I, I painful it yeah <laughs> it's like 20 minutes half an hour of my own voice and i'm like i'm done <laughs> i'm good for a week <laughs> okay so so you've been talking to these all these sorts of of individuals and, and women who are building tiny houses be it a luxury van to to a five thousand pound house which is incredible I, I guess i'm curious as to what you're looking to get out of this research are you looking at, and I know you've mentioned kind of the spread of what is a tiny house and 
um, it sounded a little bit of, um, I guess, what they make versus what they spend. And I guess the sociological implications of that. Um, but do you also look at why they chose to live in tiny houses? Um, you know, is it, are there reasons that you see are more common than, than not? Yeah, absolutely. So why is probably one of the more focal questions of the thesis, I would say predominantly, why have you done this? And what has happened afterwards? I'm really interested in the before after narratives that women share about their lives, in order to analyze the tiny house as sort of like a catalyzing or um, like a tool that they're using in order to affect some kind of deliberate change in their lives. So none of these women are living in a tiny house by accident. And whilst yes, they are nominally choosing to live in a tiny house, it's important to caveat that with an awareness that neoliberal ideology trains all of us to think about what we're doing in terms of individual choice. So whilst they might be choosing to live in a tiny house, if there was a more egalitarian distribution of wages, it's very likely that they wouldn't make that choice because they wouldn't be so financially constrained that that is one of the only choices, in air quotes, available to them. So that's the caveat. And subsequent to that, um, the main reason that the women I'm speaking to state is a financial one, but a very close second to that, which I've been kind of delighted and surprised by. I I don't know about you, but um, some of the most pleasing aspects of research is when you are surprised by what you learn. So a lot of women have spoken to me about the life-changing experience of having built something from scratch you know, with their own hands. And particularly coming at this from a gendered lens, the the idea of a woman under patriarchy is defined as something that's passive, not particularly skilled, especially in masculinized industries like construction, you know, using t- tools and lifting lumber and, you know, measuring things and doing maths. Um, so a lot of these women gave this sort of before and after it's almost like a hero's journey narrative you know the dark night of the soul where they they really couldn't lift the timber to to get it into the roof eaves but then found using their spirit guides of youtube it's youtube is the spirit guide (laughs) (laughs) they you know wrestled this timber up into the eaves and and managed to triumph over this thing that they had believed they couldn't do so there's lots of stories that they share about how you know, I didn't think I could do it, but I just wanted to find out what it was like. Or I went into the timber store and the people who work in the shop say the wildest things to these women, which it won't surprise you to learn if you spend any time paying attention to the world. But honestly, things like tell the man who's building this that he's going to need such and such nails. And these women are like, it's me. I am the man who's (laughs) building this. (laughs) Um, All kinds of things like that. And uh, there's one transformation story that I really love from one of my 
participants who was living in Portugal in a tiny house and she was using some warehouse space. And when she first started the build, you know, she'd never constructed really anything before, but she just wanted to have a go and see. And all these men were coming and going, coming and going, because they were also building things in the shared workhouse space. And at the beginning of the project, they'd stop and say things to her like, oh, you need to blah, 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 do this. The porch needs to come this way and you should use this tool. And are you really going to use that wood stone? And she'd spend so much time fretting about, oh, no, I feel like a fool. All of these men know that I'm doing a terrible job. They can tell that I don't belong here. And I also know that I don't belong here. And then over time, over the sort of six to eight months that she was building, and she was proving to herself every day that she could do it and that she could triumph over the problems that she encountered and she could learn how to do it. And she had all of the skills necessary that by the end of the project, as soon as a man came over to like give his unsolicited opinion about what she ought to be doing she'd just be like I don't have time to listen to this I'm busy goodbye and just that transformation in her ability to sort of gleefully assert her own boundaries about who she is and is not going to listen to was really nourishing to hear and life-changing for her you know because that's a lesson that whilst you learn it in the workshop you take it out into your life and that's something that I've heard from so many women in this thesis the, the joy and pleasure and power that they've got from making something from scratch, especially something that they've been told isn't really appropriate them for them to do because of their gender. That's incredible. That's such a cool story. It is your, I mean, you're very right. It is, it is like a hero's journey of the sense of transformation of character and, and, and finding yourself and coming up stronger in the end. Um, that's fascinating. Okay. Well, we've run out of time. So if there's one thing that you'd like for any listeners to 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 take away from this whole conversation, um, you know, what would it be? What do you want to put in the spotlight about tiny house research and, and its implications in people? Okay, that's a great question. Um, the thing to spotlight is probably this: that alternatives to the status quo are possible and are already in existence, in fact. Alternatives to patriarchy are possible, to the crushing financialization of the housing market, alternatives are possible, to the destruction of our planet, they are all possible. One of the sort of awesome and terrifying powers of monolithic social structures like capitalism is that they curtail our ability to imagine alternatives. They present themselves as ahistorical, as intuitive, as the only possible form of reality that we can hope to experience and because of that we struggle to see what could be beyond what already exists but women building their own low carbon tiny homes working fewer hours and living independently is one tiny example of doing things differently and maybe of doing things a bit better okay that's a great answer and uh, i think a great way to cap off the episode Thank you very much for, for coming. Thank you. This has been genuinely incredible. Yeah, me too. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me to yeah, take part. Absolutely. Listeners, I also want to remind all of you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does make a difference in getting this show out to a wider audience. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find this podcast on Twitter at Spotlight the Pod. This podcast, once again, was brought to you by Northwestern University Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SpotForceNU.
Finally, a big shout out to Emily, my co-host, as well as the production team behind this podcast, um, Colleen, as well as Bam Bam. We wouldn't be able to do this without them. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode.